If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price, and she shall be his wife. If a father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgin. Do not allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. The Lord must be destroyed. Do not ill-treat or oppress a foreigner, for you are foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, but I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Over the past uh, couple of weeks in our house, I have, um, we, we have, I suppose, endeavoured to try to talk to each other in a kinder, gentler, more loving manner. That, that's been, so a couple of weeks ago, we sat down as a family and we said, look, let's, let's see if we can do something about the way that we speak to each other. Because we were aware that it's really easy to drift into talking to people in um, an irritated manner. And often you can talk to people in an irritated manner, even if there's nothing really legitimately to be irritated about. It's something just annoyed you, which you know shouldn't have, but it did. And so you talk in that way. We were also aware of how easy it is to get cross and raise our voices, how easy it was to generalize in the way we speak in an unkind way. How easy it is sometimes to say things that are deliberately designed to hurt another person. And the thing with families is that these things can become so common, so normal, that we kind of just ignore them. We sort of give people a pass on them. It's like, oh, well, it's just the way they talk. They didn't mean it. And we just move on. But, but we decided uh, as a family, we don't want to get used to that. We don't want to get used to that way of, of talking to each other. We don't want to just accept it. And so we want to be clear that as individuals, we are going to work hard not to do that. So I'm going to work hard not to generalize when I'm talking about things, not to raise my voice. Not, I'm going to work hard, and everyone else in the family is going to work hard at that. So we agreed on that. And also, we're not going to accept it when people do. So when people do talk like that, we're not just going to ignore it or overlook it. And... When we do find ourselves talking unkindly or raising our voices, we are going to be quick to ask for and give forgiveness. So that, that's, that was the broad brushstrokes of our conversation, just getting a little insight into the Parker household at this point. If you've ever been there, it won't surprise you that we have some issues with the way we talk to each other. Um, now, now, these principles of how we're going to talk are fine. I think they're good principles. But, but what I've found over the past fortnight is they quickly run into challenges when faced with real-life situations. For example, what do you do when one person is convinced that the way they spoke was fine and the other person thinks it wasn't fine? Like, who gets to decide? Who gets to decide whether the way they spoke was fine? Is it the person who heard it? Is it their prerogative to say, well, I didn't like the way you spoke there? Or is it the person who said it to say, well... 
I know my heart and my intention is nothing. Like, how, do you, how do you navigate that space? But another issue we've run into is what do you do when someone repeatedly does something? So, for example, repeatedly loses their temper, but each time is quick to ask for forgiveness. Like, like how do you navigate that? Is that, is that okay? Like, what, what do you need to do? What, what should the correct consequences for that be or not be? Another issue is, if there are consequences for the children when they talk to like that, what are the consequences for the adults? This is another issue that we quickly run into. You see, principles that, when I was thinking about them and talking about them in the group, that seemed fine, they seemed clear, they, they quickly begin to look a bit murkier and a bit insufficient when faced with the vast array of actual situations that you find yourself in the world. Now, now I wanted to start from that, because if that is true of, of six people who share a house and how they speak to each other, if it's true of that situation, I just want you to think about how true that is going to be for the nation of Israel as we rejoin them in Exodus 22. Because if, if, if you know the story of Exodus, or if you've been around Grace Church long enough and you've heard it, then, then you'll know that we join this story at this momentous moment. Because the story begins with them slaves in Egypt, being horribly treated, their, their children killed, being forced to build uh, like buildings for the Egyptians, often uh, without even the proper resources to do that. And as they find themselves in slavery, they cry out to God. And we're told that God hears them and he has compassion on them. And he raises up this rescuer. This rescuer is the person, Moses, who you might have heard of. He, he goes to Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, God says, you need to let these people go. You can't keep them as slaves anymore. And Pharaoh says, no. And so God goes to war with Pharaoh. And he sends ten plagues on Pharaoh until eventually Pharaoh has to acknowledge defeat and say, okay, you can go. And so the Israelites leave until Pharaoh changes his mind um, and decides that he's going to hunt them down. And they end up trapped between the sea and the Egyptian army. And God, in this miraculous rescue, parts the sea so the Israelites can go through it. And then as the Egyptians go through it, the seas come down and God's victory is ensured. So, so it starts there, the story. And then they go to uh, this mountain, Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. And that is there that they're to worship God. And so they get the Ten Commandments there. We were looking at that whenever we were in Exodus last time. But, but the question is, what are these hundreds of thousands of Israelites meant to do now that they're out of slavery, free, out of Egypt? And the initial answer is they need to survive. So there's a lot of stuff in the initial bit about them getting water and food, about enemies attacking them and about how they stay safe. So first they've got to survive because a hostile world. And then the next thing that we're told is that they are to worship God. They've been rescued to worship God. And at Sinai, they do this. But... They're not going to stay at Sinai. God says they're to go, they're to find a land, a permanent home, and they're to build a nation of God's people there. 
Now, it's all well and good to have been freed. It's all well and good to have worshipped God. It's all well and good to have been given Ten Commandments. But I'm not sure that leaves you ready to lead and run a nation. Like the Israelites have never been a nation before. In fact, nations as a thing are really only just starting to come about in history. I mean, you've got a good start, so they know that they're meant to love God. They know that they're meant to worship God and God alone. They know that he wants them to have one day in seven as rest. He knows that they're not meant to steal or commit adultery or or murder. They know lots of things. But all of that is not going to be enough to govern a nation especially a nation full of sinful people, and who, which is surrounded by hostile nations. So to put it as simply as I can, what are you going to do as Moses or whoever the next Israelite leader ends up being when people start treating other people unfairly and exploiting them? How are you going to deal with that in your new nation? How are you going to deal with first rape, first murder, the first death you encounter? Like, what are you actually going to do about those things? What about manslaughter? What about self-defense? What about neglect or carelessness? What about the killing of an animal? What about where it becomes impossible to know what is true and what is not? Where you've got two witnesses who are both saying this happened and this happened, and you've got no way of knowing which one's true. Now, it's into that context that these laws, of which I've just read out a small summary are, it's into that context that these laws are given. These laws are given as the Israelites have been freed from slavery, have worshipped God on Mount Sinai, and are now going to go and establish a nation. And God is here saying, these are some laws you need to establish in this nation you're going to run. Now, I just wanted to start there, because I think it's really important that we understand that. Because these laws that I just read, in fact, all of these laws, are not primarily given to tell us here now in 21st century Hartlepool how to live. These are not laws that we are to live by. They are laws which were designed to help Israel establish a nation in the context of the world as it was in about 1500 BC. In a world of violence of different religions of hostility between people of slavery of male domination and the question that israel have to answer is in that world that they are inhabiting that is all around them in all the peoples that they're going to come into contact with how do they go about creating a nation a country now you may have found as i was reading that you were looking through those laws thinking these laws uh, a bit made me feel a bit uncomfortable. That may have been a, a feeling you had as I read them. Um, and, and I want to say that there are more uncomfortable laws within Exodus than these ones. There are, there are many laws in Exodus that make us feel uncomfortable and that are difficult. They deal with slavery and how you treat slaves. They deal with the treatment of women. And both of those um, areas are, feel very uncomfortable to us. us there's no getting around that but we do need to understand that these laws presuppose that israel exists in a fallen world so we're told jesus says when asked about divorce he says well that law was given because of the hardness of your heart 
See, these laws are given presupposing that people are sinful, that people are not going to behave as they should. They are given into a male-dominated world of slavery and violence, and therefore these laws are about how do you function in that world as it is, not how do you miraculously click your fingers and create a difference. These laws assume that sin is a reality and therefore deal with this critical question, how do you protect people in that world? Given that people are going to try to exploit other people, how do you protect the people who are in danger of being exploited? Given that people will find themselves in need, how do you provide some kind of safety net for them? Given that men will be more capable of abusing women than the other way around, how do you protect women? Given what the world they lived in looked like, what laws do they need? Now, now I think that is primarily why we don't take these laws and simply apply them to ourselves now. So you might have heard people say to you things like, oh, well, the Bible says, you know, don't eat shellfish or don't mix fabrics and you don't do that, do you? But the reason you don't do that is twofold. The first reason is because we live in a different world to the world three and a half thousand years ago. We don't live in a world where slavery is everywhere. We don't live in a world where men's physical advantages mean that they almost universally hold the positions of power. So we live in a different world. And the second reason is we're not called to create a nation. Just not what we're called to as New Testament Christians. We're not called to come up with a complex set of laws by which a nation can actually function. We're not required to know what we do about a whole host of complex, really broken situations because we're not building a nation. We are called to be God's people living in other nations, to live as exiles, we're told. And therefore, laws which apply to Israel, who were called to create a nation of God's people, are clearly different to those which we need if we're to live for God in the circumstances he puts up. So, if the case, the question we're left with is, why bother looking at this at all? Like, Why, why bother reading these laws at all? If these laws are three and a half thousand years out of date, and they don't readily apply to us, why would you bother even looking at them? Why not just ignore this whole section of the Bible and crack on to what God calls us to as New Testament believers? And I think there's two primary reasons why we don't. The first is that although the specific laws don't apply to us still, they do tell us part of the great story of how we messed up God's world and how God continued to pursue us. So they're part of the great story of what God's been doing in the world. So you can't just ignore it because it's like missing a chunk of the story out. But, but the other reason they're valuable is because God doesn't change. So although the laws may no longer uh, apply to us directly. The principles underp underpinning them must continue to be relevant because God is still the same God. He changed his views on things. So it's worth looking at these laws and thinking, what are the principles which sit under them? And I think in this section I just read, I think there's three clear principles which come through these laws. So if you have it open in front of you, this might be helpful just for you to check I'm not just making these principles up. 
Um, so first, in verses 18 to 20, there are a set of laws about worshipping God and God alone. So occult practices, idolatry, other religious practices, they are to be forbidden. God wants his people to worship him and him alone. That's the heart of this covenant, this agreement that they've just made with each other. That God is going to be their God and they are going to be his people and they are not going to worship any other gods. And that, that principle continues to be God's call in our life. So God calls us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. He calls on us all to flee idolatry. He warns us that it's not possible to have two masters. So Jesus says we can't simultaneously worship God and money. See, the things that you worship, the things that you ascribe worth to, that's going to set the direction of your life. If you worship other gods than this God, your life will go in one direction. If you worship money, your life will go in a different direction. If you worship a person, your life will go in a different direction. If you worship a country or a sports team or a lifestyle... All of those things are going to determine the direction of your life. The thing that you say, this is the greatest thing I can imagine. This is the thing that is most worthy of all of my praise and excitement and focus. That's going to set the direction of your life. So what it is you worship matters. And God says, the only thing you can do that safely with is me, is God himself. That's the only thing that you can safely worship and go, this will take my life in a good direction. So God says that in this nation, they are to make worshipping anything other than him prohibited. Worshipping God is what he deserves as the one who created, who pursued, who forgives you, who brought you back into relationship with him. Worshipping God is what we were created to do, and therefore the place that we find meaning and wholeness. And as a church, this is our invitation to you. Our invitation to you is not primarily to simply ascribe to a whole set of beliefs or to a certain way of viewing the world. Our invitation to you is to worship the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who gave up the glory of heaven to come to earth and die for you. If you're, if you're not a Christian here today, that's what we're inviting you to. We're not inviting you primarily into a club. We're not primarily inviting you into a different lifestyle. We're, primar- we're inviting you to worship the God who deserves all of your praise and glory. If you are a Christian, then our goal as a church is to help you worship that God. To help you worship him through meeting together and encouraging each other. Through walking through life together as we seek to, in everything we do, declare the glories of that God who called us out of darkness and into his excellent light. So so we've got a chunk of laws about worshipping God and God only. That continues to be God's call on your life, although the specific application of that is different. That's the first chunk of laws that we have. The second chunk of laws we have are about looking after and protecting vulnerable people in society. So we have laws about, so you can see this in 21 and 22, we have laws about caring for foreigners within Israel. They are to remember how the Egyptians treated them when they were in Egypt, and they are to not do that. They have to say, we are not going to treat foreigners as sub-class citizens in Israel. We have to care for them, not seek to exploit them. 
And then verse 22, they're to not take advantage of widows or orphans. In that culture, women and children without men to protect them and care for them were vulnerable and easily exploited. But God says that in Israel, vulnerable people are to be cared for and looked after, not exploited. In fact, that strange law that comes at the start in verse 16, 17 actually has the same principle underpinning it is to protect women from men who would seduce them, sleep with them, and then throw them away. It's a law to say that if you want to sleep with someone, you need to be willing to marry them. And if they don't marry you, you're still going to be made to pay a fee to make sure that she is provided for. Now that principle continues to apply to us today. God is a God who cares for the weak and vulnerable. And if we are going to follow him to be his people... We need to be those who care for and protect those around us who have less power than us, who are more vulnerable than we are. As a church, we need to take seriously this call to care for the poor disadvantaged and not simply to look for opportunities to increase our own wealth and our own comfort. There's a chunk of laws about that. And then the third principle, which you see in verse 25 down to 27 is that the Israelites are to care for each other. They're to be a, a kind of nation that is, looks at each other and specifically cares for people within that nation. They look out for each other rather than just looking for, out for themselves. Everyone in this community is, to take the example, to have a cloak to sleep in. And when they find themselves in need, they're supposed to be surrounded by people whose concern is how do we help this person in need rather than how do we profit from their misfortune. And again, that principle clearly remains because the New Testament's full of the same call. Christians are called to be communities where we care for each other. Where we're told, and we're told that that's what the early church did, that they sold possessions to provide for each other when they were in need. So underpinning these laws, which are to a specific people at a specific time, are three key principles, at least, which continue to apply to us today. We're to worship God only, no one else, nothing else. We're to care for and protect vulnerable people. And we're to care in a unique way for the community of God's people with God. Three principles that were played out in the nation of Israel that are now played out in the church. Now, the application of those principles at times seems odd and outdated to us. That's because we live in a very different culture with very different power dynamics issues and specifically expressions of sin. But as I say those principles, they probably make sense to you. There's only not a whole load of people who are like, no, we just want to exploit the weak and vulnerable. They make sense to us, right? Like We hear them, we think they seem like reasonable things. Wouldn't we want to be in a world where human beings are able to find fullness in worshipping the God who made them? Wouldn't we want to live in a world where vulnerable people are cared for and protected rather than exploited? Wouldn't we want to live in a world where you become, where when you become one of God's people, you become part of a community which will love and support you rather than one that will be out for what they can get? Like, that, that's what we'd want, right? That's how we'd want the world to work. If you were creating a country, that's what, you, what, you, what you'd want the country to look like. If you're creating a church, that's what, you, what you'd want the church to look like. But the amazing thing is that God gave all his laws to Israel. He gave them all and Israel wasn't that kind of nation. They, it, they were insufficient. They continued, you don't have to read very far, 
to be horrific examples of men abusing their strength, of those who were weak and vulnerable, vulnerable being taken advantage of. The community of Israel was not one where people cared for each other, but rather one of injustice, civil wars, violence. It didn't worship God alone. In fact, it's going to take us a few chapters to get there. They run after other gods. They adopt their religious practices. They adopt their values. God gave them these laws, and yet these laws proved to be woefully insufficient to deal with the sin and brokenness which existed. But before we look back too smugly and go, well, I'm not surprised given how primitive those laws look. I just want to ask a question about whether our laws have been that much more successful. So we've now outlawed slavery. And yet there continue to be many people who live in modern slavery as those with more power, slave those with less power, who often continue to be women and children just like they were three and a half thousand years ago. We force them to live unimaginably terrible lives. And even where that's not the case, so even where the law to, uh, to ban slavery has been effective, we live in a world where the rich continue to exploit the poor. The removal of slavery might make people technically free, but their circumstances their lack of income, their lack of representation, their lack of power or agency, their lack of opportunities, often make them, if we're honest, worse, in worse situations than the slaves three and a half thousand years ago described in the law would have been. You know, they had somewhere to live, enough food to eat. They, they actually could function. We congratulate ourselves on the abolition of slavery and then participate in a system which treats people even worse. We've now got rid of outdated ideas about marriage and bride prices, but we still live in a world of hashtag me too. A world where people in power, often men, use this power to convince or force those with less power to have sex with them and then throw them away. A culture where they can do that without any recourse or consequences. That would be very different if before you decided if you wanted to sleep with someone, you had to decide if you were willing to share your money and your possessions and your life with them and them alone. It would be difficult for someone to go away from that feeling used and exploited, like so many people have said they did through the Me Too movement. You see, the laws that we read here were inadequate to deal with the sin in our world. And our laws of our culture are equally inadequate. And actually, the New Testament is going to say that's part of the point of these laws. It's part of the reason that God gave these laws. These laws were in part given to show us that we're going to need more than laws if we're ever going to sort out the mess of this world. Laws are never going to get us there. That is why... Throughout the Old Testament, a day was promised where the law would no longer be required. There wouldn't be laws anymore. Where instead of these laws, God would so transform our hearts that all of that evil would be defeated. It's why Jesus says that the fulfillment of the law isn't, isn't people not murdering, but people's heart being so changed that they don't hate, they don't have that desire within them. One day the law is going to be fulfilled. The law revealed how powerless we were to deal with the brokenness of this world. 
And Jesus came and he said, I've come to fulfill the law. And then in Romans, Paul writes that what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son. These laws couldn't turn the Israelites into the God created them to be. Our laws cannot restrain the evil in our heart. But Jesus came. And on the cross, he said, I will bear all the penalty which your law-breaking requires. And I will give you my spirit so that your heart can begin to be transformed. That news of what Jesus did, that's the gospel, right? That's, that's what we mean when we say the good news. The good news is that forgiveness is offered. The good news is that the consequence of our sins are taken. And that Jesus committed to changing our hearts to such an extent that laws will no longer be required. You see, what are we meant to do with passages like this? When I was reading it and you were shuffling uncomfortably in your seats, like, what, what are you meant to do with this? How are you meant to read this and, and think about it? Well, what we're meant to read them, and then we're meant to look at Israel's history and say, laws will never be enough to sort out this meant to read them and then look at our lives and say laws are never going to be enough to deal with my selfishness with my exploitation with my idolatry and that's meant to prepare us to see Jesus who put an end to the law and rejoice that what the law was powerless to do he did at the cross let me pray for us and then we'll uh, respond. But God, I thank you that you are a God who throughout history has had a unique care for vulnerable, the exploited, the marginalized. Thank you that here, three and a half thousand years ago, we can see that that's the kind of God you, were, you are. And that when Jesus came, he he showed that he was exactly that same way. And Father God, when we look at our lives and we see all of the brokenness, all of the sin, all of the idolatry, all of the ways that we continue to look to exploit people rather than care for them, we recognize that we need more than laws. We need forgiveness and transformation. So, Lord God, now this afternoon we confess to you all the ways that we fail to live up to those principles that we've seen here. And we ask your forgiveness for them. And we pray that through your spirit you would invite the laws of grace on our hearts. But I pray that you would help us not to Use laws to smugly point the finger at them, but rather we see our great need of you and rejoice in what you do.